So we are in Isaiah 49. I have surplus of pens as well. All right. Okay. All right. Who was all at the baptism Sunday? Wasn't that sweet? That was so great. Yeah. Yeah, it was sweet. So, and the, the Lewis County Bridge didn't fall, which was a good thing. So, yeah, BJ was completely comfortable with it. Yeah. So, but we're, he's out. He's, he can't even hear us. Can you hear us, BJ? He can't even hear us out there. He's, he's talking with the security guys. Um, yeah. But I think that, you know, where those railroad ties are, that it almost looks like they were going to make steps. I think we should just go down there on a weekend when the county's not around and just we'll pour forms and make steps down into the river. And they'll thank us on Monday. So, yeah, I used to go down there after hours and fall trees along the trail because, you know, those alders, when they get old, they fall. They just get dangerous. And uh, so the ones that were leaning at 45-degree angles over the trail, i just go dump them and then cut them and pull them off the trail. And then I'd call a county guy and, and just tell him what I did. And they're like, oh, thanks, just don't tell anybody. So, but we always like to go back to a ride, and I didn't want anything to fall on us. So, but I think now things have changed at the county, and uh, they're taking good care of it. So, All right, also, um, there is a receptionist position open at Possibilities, um, which is the, um, the ladies' clinic. Does everybody know about Possibilities? Yeah, so I, th- I think that, I don't want to say desperate, but they really need a receptionist down there. Um, so if you're interested in that, then go down and chat with them and, and see. So I think it, preferably they would like a female down there working. Yeah. Okay, um, one more thing. It's been brought to my attention that food, like wet food, is being smeared into some of the seats in the auditorium, um, probably by the older people, I'm sure. And, uh, but it's to where, so one of the guys in the church, uh, you know, Friday morning and then Monday morning, he comes in here and he, he sweeps all the chairs off and then so that things can be vacuumed, but this stuff isn't sweeping off. And, uh, so out of a ministry to those who serve us, uh, we've decided that on Thursday nights, we're just not going to do food in the auditorium. So parents, would you please monitor that? Because uh, they're gonna, the, all those chairs will have to be steam cleaned now. And uh, if that doesn't get it out, then, you know, is that fair enough? We could eat in, like, eating areas. Yeah. Now, we did want to um, give an exception, and that's to mothers with small children. And they're trying to keep them occupied uh, while they're listening to me preach. And, um, but just please clean up after yourselves. Is that fair? Okay. All right. And adults, lids on your coffee. Especially if you have creamer in it. Okay, creamer smells bad after about three days in the upholstery. All right. All right. Well, uh, we are now getting into the next major section of Isaiah. Uh, This next big section is called the the servant song by some um, commentators. I don't actually like the the title for it because there's no song in it. I I can't figure out why uh, some, some... commentators that have been dead for over a century now called it the, the servant songs. Um, I've read stuff on it. I've tried to find out why they would think that. But there's just no songs uh, anywhere in the text. It's just all, it's all oracle. It's all prophecy. And um, so these are prophecies 
from the Lord through Isaiah about um, this servant, uh, capital S, who will be coming on the scene uh, in, in the future, of course. And so we'll be doing that for a couple months. And this is actually, I think, the, the most exciting part of the book of Isaiah, except for a few places like Isaiah 6, 7, 9, and 11, uh, those chapters. This whole, the whole major section is, uh, of course, about Christ, his ministry. Uh, we're all familiar with Isaiah 53, both the, um, the substitutional and the penal nature of Jesus' sacrifice, how it is that we're justified um, as, as human beings, uh, sinners, and um, good stuff. So anyway, uh, that's what we're at. Chapter 49, the first chapter, deals with the scope of, um, we might say, the scope of the, the servant's ministry. And the scope is completely global. He's not just a servant to Israel or the people of the Jews, but it's, it's global. Okay? And it's, it's, it's neat how it comes out in the text, the way that the Father speaks of the Son. So the context itself shifts in its attention from the judgment of Israel and the nations. Those are, are all still discussed, but the primary focus is not that, um, but it's, it's the salvation that's provided by this servant of the Lord, uh, a salvation that consists uh, to um, ultimately a salvation that consists of physical material things as well as spiritual redemption. So when we look at the promises of God to the new covenant believer, um, there, there are no uh, like material blessings promised. There's the, the promise of provision, but not of like material wealth as we see in the old covenant. So to the Jews in the old covenant, there was all kinds of material and physical blessing. Like, uh, and we've talked about this before, uh, no miscarriage. If Israel walked in the covenant faithfully, they would never experience a stillborn, a miscarriage, not among uh, the Israelites themselves or their flocks or herds. Uh, they would never have pestilence come through the land. No locusts, no lice, no, that's some serious promises to Israel. As the church, none of those are passed to us. Our promises are almost exclusively spiritual. But when the full consummation of this servant's ministry is done, it's material and it's spiritual. Okay? And uh, so that's important to, to point out uh, as we go through the text. Um, as we've said, it's not just for Israel. It's, it's global. Um, and it'll be for all nations at least for those that are present um, at the consummation of these ministries of the, of the servant. Um, something else that we have to uh, differentiate between is, of course, we know that the Jews, at least half of the, the population of Jews on the planet have returned to Israel. We don't want to confuse that uh, with what this chapter talks about, okay? Because... Some people uh, are saying that Israel in the land today is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But every time the Old Testament prophets talk about the restoration of Israel in the land, it's associated with faithfulness. Israel is not faithful at this, this place in history. Uh, the majority of all Jews are secular, not religious. So they don't believe, many of them are, are atheist. Many of them are even pagan. And so the Orthodox community of Jews, those that believe in the Bible, is extremely low, okay? 
And so we don't want to confuse the, the, the regathering of Israel in 1948 with what will happen here in the text. Understand? So I know some, there's some like Bible prophecy guys out there that are saying that, but they're missing a point of exegesis from the prophets, and that's Israel's faithfulness. They are currently under divine chastisement, right? Okay, okay. Um, where was I? Why don't, we, why don't we stand up and we'll, we'll read the text. Isaiah 49. If it gets too long to stand, don't worry about it. You can go ahead and sit, and we won't judge you. So listen carefully to the language. Listen, O coastlands. Now your translation might say islands. Same thing. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be, shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them, even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see. All these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them, all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. 
the children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, this place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and am desolate and captive and wandering to and fro. And who has brought these up? There I was left alone, but these, where were they? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulder. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob." Father, thank you for your word. <laughs> your promises, they're, they're guarantees. They're sovereign decrees. And Lord, it's for us to read about them. And though many of these are for Israel, it, we serve the same God who is faithful. And Lord, we want to be assured and encouraged uh, just by the fact that you're faithful. Lord, you will keep your promises. And those who would stand in the way, Lord, as our, our chapter says, they will suffer for it. Lord, thank you for your word. We, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Couldn't be seated. It's, it's not a big chapter. It's only 26 verses. All right, let's return to verse one. Again, the language, he says, listen, O coastlands or islands, listen to me and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. Now, the, 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 this person was first hinted at in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16, where it says that the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. You remember the discussion about that text. There's three divine persons in the passage. There's the Lord God, there his, there's his spirit, and there's me. And me, throughout the, the context there, is the one who created everything. So we have this Trinitarian text in the Old Testament, okay? So this me, of course, we know that to be Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Uh, that was kind of a tease in chapter 48, but now he becomes central to the text, okay? He's the person that the text is talking about. His, his identity um, throughout the scriptures has not been a complete secret. Remember he said, he says, I have not spoken in secret since the beginning, so we should expect to find places where the scriptures talk about him, and we actually do. Uh, in fact, immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve, in the section of the curse, God makes a divine promise in regard to redemption. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's promising that the damage done by the tempter, the, the serpent, will be reversed by the son of the woman, okay, who comes in the future. Uh, we also see it in Genesis 49.10, you remember the patriarchal blessing of Jacob to his boys. He goes, 
He starts at the oldest with Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. And it's interesting. As soon as he gets to Judah, he starts talking about eternal things. And he says that a lawgiver will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That's a very interesting prophecy. Okay. So a lawgiver, Judah, of course, ultimately becomes the lawgiver of Israel, right? The tribe of Judah from where David came. Okay. But it says the scepter, that right to rule the people, will not be taken away from Judah until Shiloh comes. Now, even the ancient rabbis uh, before the birth of Christ said Shiloh is an idiom for the Messiah. Well, the question is, when did the scepter depart from Judah? The first quarter of the first century. The scepter will not depart until Shiloh comes. Now, according to historians, Christ was born just a few years before the Roman decree to remove Israel's right to rule over itself. Did he come? He came, just like God said. So we have that in Genesis 49. We have Psalm 22, a description of the Christ, the crucifixion, Psalm 110, many, many others. But when we look at the Old Testament, his exact identity is not fully disclosed, not to anyone. It's not fully disclosed, of course, till the New Testament. But since the beginning of Isaiah, his identity, his mission, and all of that has become less and less obscure. Remember, we talked about when we come into the book of Isaiah, it's like a blank canvas when it comes to the identity of this Genesis 3.15 person. And every prophecy adds a little bit of detail to the canvas. And so we actually have many, many details about this individual, this, this person that is anticipated in the Old Testament. It says, he, the Lord, has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Now, the imagery is interesting in light of the gospel narrative. Uh, his, it says his mouth was like a sword. He's like this polished shaft. That is like an arrow. And he has been hidden in this, the quiver of God, as it were. So his mouth is a sword. Uh, I would say that it's the, the illustration or the figure of speech rather is, speaks of his teaching, his teaching. And then he's like this arrow that's in a quiver that is ready, but hasn't yet been deployed. You get it? Or, or shot, okay? Now Jesus was both, uh, in his ministry, he was both an offensive and defensive teacher, was he not? He would give affirmative instruction. And then of course the Pharisees would come. And then what would he do? He would defend the people from them. He would protect them from their legalism, their lack of compassion, and things like that. But his word is like a sword. It's interesting in Hebrews, it says, For the, Lord, the word of the Lord is living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I like that. Thoughts and intents. When in, in Jesus' ministry, he knew the motivation of people. In fact, he said, in John it says, he would not commit himself to man because he knows what's in man. <laughs> it's not good. So the, 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 the description here of the word of God is exactly what Jesus did in his ministry. And then like this sharpened arrow that is in the quiver, but ready to be deployed. Well, see, in person, he was deployed to the nation of Israel. But then through the apostles, he was deployed to the nations, right? That's what the whole 
Great Commission is all about. He was him in person, deployed to the Jews, and then through the apostles and the church, deployed to the Gentile world. And he, that's the Lord, said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, the passage here uh, oftentimes confuses and throws people uh, to what is really the overall description of Messiah. Uh, We use words like uh, type and anti-type. How many of you guys have heard those terms? So something in the Old Testament is a type or a figure of a New Testament reality, okay? And so Messiah in the Old Testament is oftentimes a type. I'm sorry, the people of Israel, uh, the nation of Israel is often a type of Messiah in the New Testament. Uh, We actually see that in um, Hosea 11.1 and then the fulfillment in Matthew 2.15. Hosea is talking about God bringing, looking back and bringing his son out of Egypt. Well, he's talking about Israel as a nation when he brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus, but that was a type of when Christ would flee to Egypt because Herod was after his life, and then God would bring him back. So the, the activity of the nation of Israel foreshadowed in some, sometimes in some ways what the Messiah would do in the New Testament. So here, God refers to Messiah as Israel, you get it? In whom he would be glorified. Now, if Israel is gonna glorify God, it's gonna need to happen through the Messiah because they haven't done it yet, amen? It just hasn't happened. So he's going to have to do that in them, okay? Now, in the context of the overall section, the Messiah will glorify God in a number of ways. Now, in the section, I mean not just this chapter, but the following chapters talking about this servant, that he'll glorify God in his incarnation. When, when God becomes a man, and then his, his perfectly righteous life, and then through his suffering, his substitutional, his atoning death, his his victorious resurrection, by his name being proclaimed throughout the world, and then that's first coming, and then his return and reign over the earth, and then the destruction and creation of the new heavens and the new earth. That's the scope of the servant's ministry in this major section of Isaiah. It's huge in how you'll glorify God. So if the people of Israel are going to have a glorified position before God, it can't be achieved by them. None of the things mentioned in this major section are things that they can do. Somebody has to do them as a substitute for them, okay? So he'll ultimately fulfill all the promises to Israel through his son. That's important. <laughs> Could you imagine if all of these stellar demands, if it was up to us to bring those to fulfill? So one for us is Matthew 5:48. be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. I would have interrupted Jesus at that point. I said, hold the phone. (laughs) I thought I heard you say perfect, but it's wait. He's the perfect one who lives a a perfect and righteous life. And those who put their trust in him, his righteousness is imputed to them. And then that righteousness is presented before the father who declares us righteous in his sight. There's no way that we can meet the, the perfect demands of God's moral nature, right? It has to be done vicariously or by a substitute. Same thing with Israel. If Israel is going to have this glorified status with God the Father, it has to come through his son. So here in the text, you are my servant, O Israel, it's presenting Messiah as the ideal Israelite who will represent all of Israel before the Lord. 
That's the only way that we could justify the promises of God being fulfilled to Israel. Then I said, this is the Messiah speaking, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. At what point do you think that Jesus may have said this in his earthly ministry? Just think about it. When we, when we break the three and a half years up of Jesus's ministry, we have the beginning stages where he first begins to preach and then his disciples, he calls his disciples to himself. And then uh, you remember John's disciples came to John and said, look, all are going to Jesus and they're now baptizing everyone. And John says, that's great. It's the way this is supposed to be. That period of time, uh, it's, it's called the, the, the period of his popularity, especially in the North. He was just popular. But then as time went by and the Pharisees were poisoning the people, his popularity waned, especially in the South, in Jerusalem. And then there was this conspiracies against his life, planning his death. Now, it was at that stage of his ministry that Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives and he looked down upon Jerusalem and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone, stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I wanted, he says, but you were unwilling. That was a rough day for Christ. He came for them and they refused him. But the question is, was his ministry a failure? No way. No way. Yeah, as we've said many times, success is not determined based upon numbers. It's determined by faithfulness. That's how we determine if someone is successful. You know, Jesus, he always did those things that pleased his father. He was faithful, and therefore his just reward is not found in man's reception of him, but in the approval of his father, right? That's where it's at, okay? I think that lesson is super valuable uh, for so many people. I don't know how many people have come to me and said, you know, I've shared the faith with these people and they just refuse me. And they're really depressed. They're discouraged over it. And as if someone's response is on their shoulders. No, no, no. We've been called to go and preach the gospel, but we can't coerce people to come to faith. So faithfulness is just determined by us being loyal to what Christ has called us to do. How people respond is that's on them. How mankind responded to Jesus was on them. Um, there's a danger in, in this whole thing. Um, when, when, when success is about the results, the results are always compromise. It's always compromise. Uh, in ministry, if it's about the numbers, you'll do whatever it takes to get the numbers. And historically, what has happened is the message from the pulpit has always been watered down and compromised. Okay, And then instead of then what you do is you end up filling your church with false converts. So the results is always compromise, okay? Preaching the gospel, you know, if it's about getting people to uh, respond positively, then what you do is you dilute the gospel and you make it more palatable to the sinner and you get this positive response from them, but you've compromised and you haven't actually won any souls to Christ because if people fail to repent, they are not converted, I think it's the same with parenting. If parenting is about your kids liking you, you'll always be trying to make them like you at all costs, at all costs. We're just called to be faithful and that is, that's success. 
Now, anything else I think is just too stressful. If the results are on your shoulders, that is extremely stressful, but it's not. We're just called to obey. And if people don't respond, it's completely on them. Yeah, Jesus was 100% successful. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. You see how in the previous verse, uh, the, the Messiah is considered the, uh, the ideal Israelite. Uh, it can't be the nation of Israel bringing back Jacob or bringing back Israel. You get it? This is the ideal Israel who is Messiah, who has come to uh, bring Israel back. He says, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. He will do it. Indeed, he says, this is the father. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. What a compliment from the father to the son. He's saying, no, no, no. Just the nation of Israel is your inheritance. Not good enough for you. I'm going to give it all to you. I'm going to give everything to you. Yeah, you remember in that last section of Hebrews chapter one, it's just this, this praise, this, um, this um, what do we call it? The doxology to Jesus. And we would expect perhaps people and angels to be providing this doxology of Jesus. But his father gets involved. And the father says to the son, God the Father says to Jesus, your throne, O God, is everlasting. And he, and he says, the angels worship you. Just talking about how glorious the Son is. And here he's saying, it's not enough for you to just give you the inheritance of Israel. It all belongs to you. You're worthy of far more than just that. I'll extend your inheritance to the utter ends of the world. So in this sense, we can say his atonement is universal. It's available to absolutely everyone, of course, so to only be applied to those who believe, whether they're Jew or Gentile. This is what the Great Commission is all about. Now, real quick, I think it's important at this place. <clears throat> the concept of Gentile salvation was no surprise to Isaiah at that period of history. It was no, no surprise to David, because David also talked about the ushering in of the Gentile through Messiah. But by the time the first century rolls around, Isaiah's prophecy is completely radical. And the reason is, is that by that time, the Jews had become so racist, so racist. Uh, we've talked about that in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in the book of John, is that when the Jews from Jerusalem would travel to the northern uh, district of Galilee, they would actually leave the land of Israel to avoid the Samaritans, and they would take a highway up the east side of the Jordan River because they didn't want to touch the ground that those people walked on. And then what is interesting is that the, the ancient Talmuds, the, the Jewish commentaries in the Bible, they talk about the Gentiles really being the fuel for hell, more like Gehenna that they were created to keep hell burning, just like garbage would continue to be thrown on the garbage heap outside of Jerusalem to keep it burning. The Gentiles were created for that. So this whole issue uh, about Gentile salvation is a big deal. You remember when Paul said that, I, I, I took, he said to the Sanhedrin, so I went to the Gentiles, and they flipped their lid. Gentiles. 
why would you go to the fuel for hell? You get it? It's no surprise to the authors of scripture, but to the people of Israel, this was radical by the time the first century came around. They've always been in God's sights. Praise God, by the way, because I'm very Gentile. Yeah. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation, not nations, but nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. This is so interesting. In one verse, we go from half of it being the first coming of Christ to the other half being the second. In, in the first coming of, of Christ, he was like Isaiah 53 presents him. He's the suffering servant. He's despised. He's rejected by men. He's the subject of Caesar because he was born into the Roman Empire. He's a servant of the, the emperor. So he was born into that. He was despised by the nation of Israel, at least corporately, and by her leadership. But by the time he comes the second time, the roles are completely reversed. And he now is the king of heaven and earth, and the kings of the earth will worship at his feet. He's the cosmic king. Okay, it's great. Even in the New Testament, Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Do you know what the Greek word for every means? Every. He says, of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, so wherever a living being exists, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Kings, princes, the rulers of the, of the earth will all bow down. But it's also those in the heavens, that is angels who gladly do it, but then there's Satan and his angels that will have to do it. And that will be a sweet, sweet day. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. For what? To restore the earth, that is, same Hebrew word for land, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. So that's interesting. The, the covenant here, giving him as a covenant to the people in the context of the land, what is the land? Don't say America, okay? It's Israel. It's the land of Israel. So God promised Abraham and his physical descendants the land of Canaan, and it's for a perpetual inheritance, okay? Now, the, of course, the promise to inherit the land was unconditional, according to Romans 12, 15, 17, 22, and on and on and on. But occupying the land and enjoying God's blessing in it was contingent upon their faithfulness to the covenant. Like I said, Israel is not there today enjoying the blessings talked about in the prophets, okay? They have some blessing now. There's some amazing things about Israel, but they have nothing as it's promised in the law of Moses. They've never achieved the faithfulness that God calls them to. But through faith in Christ, when the nation turns to him, all the original boundaries promised to them will be restored, okay? And they'll enjoy the land in all of its blessing. That'll bring about, not that, something will bring that about, and then the whole earth will fall under this 
what we might say, times of refreshing. He says that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourself. They shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on desolate heights. Yeah, so those that are scattered abroad in the last days under persecution, captivity, they're going to be set free and God is going to lead all of them back to their land and in the process, he'll provide all of their needs. That is such an important fact to address, okay? He says, they shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them for he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road and my highway shall be elevated. The idea is that for, for ease of travel, the mountains will come down, the valleys will come up, making the ground smooth. It's a figure of speech for ease of travel. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and these from the land of Sinem. This is important. When in, just, just after World War II, okay, the UN had said, all right, let's let the Jews go back to Israel. Did, did you know it was, it, was a, it was approved by the UN? They haven't approved anything for Israel since, but that was approved by them. The, the crazy thing is, is that after World War II, they were not welcome into other countries, really, except maybe from a little bit in South America. And no one really came to their aid. In fact, when ships came from Europe across the Atlantic filled with emaciated Jews after the Holocaust, the American government turned them away, as did many other countries. And by turning them away, that meant back over the Atlantic. You can watch videos of them being at ports in, in New York, holding their dead children out over to the, the people of America and saying, we're dying on these ships. They're holding their dead babies out. They were still emaciated from the concentration camps. And our government said, we don't want you here. Is that what the text is saying? Oh, yeah. It's horrifying, isn't it? It's terrible. But here in the passage, God is saying, when I do this, they'll have ease of entrance back to the land. I will provide all of their needs. They won't thirst. They won't hunger. They won't suffer from the sun. All of their needs will be met on the road. Isn't that crazy? No struggle. No one will reject them. As the earlier verse said, the, the peoples will lick the dust of their feet. They will bend over backwards to serve them when God calls them back in his, his, his final plan. Crazy, huh? What we're, what we're seeing now is not the same. I know that the declaration of their sovereignty on May 14th, 1948 from Ben-Gurion put out to the whole world, that was... It was absolutely amazing. Now, I wasn't alive, of course, but I've watched it, and it's, it's tremendous. It's, it's a modern miracle. No other nation, after being exiled from their land for more than a generation, has preserved its culture, religion, and ethnicity. Israel has been out for 2,000 years, and they've maintained that. It's tremendous, tremendous. But it is not the fulfillment of this. He says, they will not hunger. They will not thirst. We're waiting for this to be fulfilled. The end of the verse, with great emphasis, it says for the people to look. It says that the Jews even come from Sinem. We have no idea where that is, okay? Some people believe that it's southern China, and that would fit with the emphasis. Like, look, they're even coming from China. Now, I've met Jews from China, so it's, it's, not, it's not out of reach. Others say it's Aswan, Egypt, but that wouldn't be much of an emphasis, 
they've always been in Egypt, okay? Uh, the Jews have, have done commerce throughout all of the Mediterranean. So I believe it's way beyond any of that to have this uh, emphasis there, wherever it is. And he says, sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. This is going to be an occasion for great rejoicing. But Zion said, so this response from the people is, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. But the Lord responds and says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The idea is, the walls in regard to everything in them, the cities and the people that belong in them. It's ever before me. It's always on my mind, so much so that I've inscribed you on my hand. How many of you guys have written a note on your hand so you don't forget? Okay, but this note has been on God's hand for thousands of years. That's a pretty permanent note. Keelan DeLitz, old school Hebrew scholar, said this is the same idea as a tattoo. Some people say, well, no, Leviticus condemns tattoos. Actually, Leviticus condemns tattoos for the dead. That is some kind of necromancy or something related to the Egyptian death cults. There's actually nothing in scripture that condemns just tattoos in general. But these Hebrew scholars, it's interesting, they're guys from the 1800s from Germany, and they don't have all this cultural uh, taboo with tattoos. And they say, well, that's a tattoo. Interesting. I'm not advocating for or against tattoos. I don't have any. I actually went to get one. I think I told you guys that for, to replace my wedding ring, and they talked me out of it. They said that the Hebrew lettering would blur and then just be a mess. But when you get your finger caught in your ring between two pieces of heavy metal, you just kind of want something there different. Have you ever seen a finger peeled like a banana from a ring? It's completely gross. <laughs> anyway, it's not in the text, so let's move on. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I have a delete button here on my, my pad. So if you want to look that up in Leviticus, it's 19. Anyway, it's crazy. He has engraved them on his hand. He will not forget his people or his promises. Your son shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see all these gather together and come to you. That's the land of Israel. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. So the, na- the, the, the land of Israel essentially will be decorated by the people of God when they return to him in faith. What an interesting figure of speech. It's like the land of Israel becomes a Christmas tree. Or like a bride on her wedding day, where she's just decked out and, and beautiful. He says, for your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ear, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. So the land will be so filled It'll be like there's not enough room for them. Then you will say in your heart, who's, who's begotten these for me? It's, you know, he's personified the land. The land is going to be like, where do they all come from? Since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro. And who has brought these up? There I was left alone, but these, where were they? Where did they come from? 
Thus says the Lord, behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. That's very different than the U.S. government saying, go back over the Atlantic, right? They will be helping the Jews back to their land, aiding them. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. So currently, you guys, Israel is one of the most hated nations on the planet. Do you know that? If you just like Google all of the the UN resolutions against Israel over the last three years, and then go back 20 years, no other nation has had as, as many like resolutions and sanctions against them as Israel. It is, it's, it's bizarre how the UN treats Israel. It is completely bizarre, okay? But one day that will all be reversed when God works. He says, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. This is going back all the way to Genesis 12 when God promised Abraham and his descendants, I will curse those who curse you. I will curse those who curse you. Yes, typically the predator devours its prey, but God will come to the rescue of Israel in the last day. There's nobody that can stop him. This is, it's just, I don't even understand. We read about Satan and his courage to take on Christ in the end. Nobody can stop him when he comes to save. He says, I'll feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So when, when Christ is done, the servant of the Lord, in the consummation of his ministry, everybody alive on the earth at that time will know that the God of Jacob is Yahweh. They'll just know it. And anybody who stands in his way, as the text talks about, he will destroy them. It's a gruesome description there of what he, he's saying. But it's, it's just God through Christ coming in vengeance against the enemies of God and of Israel. As Second Thessalonians 1 says that, that Christ is coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. Okay. And he also talks about those who torment his people. He's taking vengeance on them. So in this whole chapter, the redemption of Israel is just going to be this glorious, wild event, right? But the fall of her enemies will be devastating and it will be final. Yep. So the, the scope of Messiah's entire ministry is there in like an outline form. He comes, he's rejected. The people go into chastisement. He returns. Their faith is restored. And then they're restored to the land, the final judgment, and then on to eternity. Then the outline will be broken down in the following chapters. I kept you for a long time. Go ahead and stand up. You know, we are getting to Matthew 24 and 25, which is that major end time section of Matthew. So we might as well get warmed up, right? That's right. Let's pray. Well, Father, it's, it's encouraging to me just to 
uh, be a witness of your promises, even if they're not to me. Uh, the fact that you're faithful to everything you say, Lord, you're worthy of our worship and our devotion. And I, I can't wait to the, the, the greater fulfillment of the things that you've both promised Israel and to us. As Paul said, that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, when they're all gathered through faith in Christ, then all Israel will be saved. Lord, all of these things will, will come together in the end and we'll all rejoice in your faithfulness, your goodness, your redemption. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage us by that and you would help us day by day by your grace to walk worthy of your promises, Lord. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.